I'm going to uh, allow St. Bernard to help me out today. And I've given you this wonderful excerpt from his homily on Advent, and I'm just going to read it to you, and then I'm going to use that as my taking off place. Uh, We have come to know a threefold coming of the Lord. The third coming takes place between the other two. They are clearly manifest, but the third is not. In the first coming, the Lord was seen on earth and lived among men in the days when, as he himself bears witness, they saw and hated him. In his last coming, all flesh shall see the salvation of our God, and they shall look on him whom they have pierced. The other coming is hidden. In it, only the chosen see him within themselves, and their souls are saved. In brief, his first coming was in the flesh in weakness. This intermediary coming is in the spirit and in power. The last coming will be in glory and majesty. This intermediary coming is like a road leading from the first to the last coming. In the first coming, Christ is our redemption. In the last, he will appear as our life. In this intermediary coming, he is our rest and consolation. Do not imagine that what we are saying about the intermediary coming is simply our own fabrication. Listen to Christ himself. If a man loves me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come to him. I have read elsewhere, the man who fears the Lord will do good. But it is my opinion that more was said of the one who loves, namely, that he will keep the words. Where then are they to be kept? Without any doubt, they are to be kept in the heart, as the prophet says, I have kept your words in my heart, lest I sin against you. Keep the word of God in that way, for blessed are they who keep it. Let it pierce deep into your inmost soul and penetrate your feelings and actions. Eat well, and your soul will delight and grow. Do not forget to eat your bread, or your heart will wither, but let your soul feast richly. If you keep the word of God in this way, without a doubt, you will be kept by it. The Son with the Father will come to you. The great prophet who will renew Jerusalem will come, and he will make everything new. The effect of this coming will be that just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Just as the old Adam was poured out throughout the whole man and filled him completely, so now let Christ take possession of the whole man, for he created the whole man, he redeemed the whole man, and he will glorify the whole man. Okay, Um, St. Bernard, uh, in in my estimation, speaking as a Westerner, um, he and uh, Origen are the two... uh, 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 Origen, in my opinion, is, is the greatest Bible scholar ever in the sense that he, he knew more about the Bible than anybody. But he and Bernard both have this amazing ability to quote scripture and make connections between things you wouldn't normally see. Uh, in my opinion, they do it better than anybody else. You might not realize, but there's almost not a sentence in here where Bernard isn't actually quoting scripture. It's, it's actually kind of a, a chain link uh, set of quotations, but he's also arguing something here. So I just want to unpack this a little bit, and then I'm going to give my own take on these three comings. Um, So in the sanctuary of our church, we have Christ in glory, and it depicts Christ in a twofold representation, both at the ascension and at the second coming. And when Christ ascends, he says to the, the apostles, or the, actually the angels say to the apostles, in the same way you have seen him ascending, you will see him return. Uh, 
right? And what this means in, in a certain sense is that the ascension and the second coming are one and the same thing in a strange way. So time has actually ended in a really important way with the resurrection of Christ. Uh, the old world has been broken. The old world that's bound to time and to space and to decay. Um, this has all been um, uh, replaced in a certain sense, renewed in the kingdom of God. It's just we can't see the kingdom with our own eyes yet. It, but it's already done in a sense. And so Christ's ascension into heaven is him taking his throne and manifesting himself to the world at the same time. It's just in some strange way, this uh, world continues to go on, the old world that is passing away. And we live in it now. Um, sometimes the, we talk about a threefold time scheme or three eras of salvation history. There's the time of shadows, the time of signs, and then the time of the reality. And so before Christ's coming and before the resurrection, the world lived in shadow. And so what this means is that there were intimations of God's plan of salvation, but no one really knew what was going to happen exactly. The prophets prophesied in such a way that they didn't even realize what they were pointing to. Uh, they simply were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak the words that they spoke. And then we understand what they meant now after the incarnation and resurrection. But what was happening in those times was in shadow. Uh, uh, Abraham saw from afar. He didn't get to see Christ in the flesh. He didn't get to see Christ in the sacraments. He longed for Christ in a very uh, and sort of darkened and confused way. Less confused than the pagans, but still in a shadow. Uh, with the ascension, Christ and the Holy Spirit inaugurate the time of signs, the sacramental time. This is that intermediary time that St. Bernard is talking about. So now we see Christ. Uh, I was thinking this uh, at, at the uh, consecration today. Um, when the priest facing east holds up the body of Christ, that's so you can see that is him. Uh, that is the Lord whom we worship present. He has come again. And in a sense, that is his second coming already. And here we are, we're at the kingdom of God. Uh, but we're perceiving it through symbols and signs, through sacraments. It's not, uh, we don't see Christ as he is in his essence, in a sense. We, we see Christ mediated through the sacramental signs. It's a true presence in a way that, say, the signs and types of the Old Testament were we're not the true presence in the way that we talk about the Eucharist. Uh, but it's still a symbolic representation, a symbolic mode of, of seeing. Uh, at the end of time, we will not need the sacraments anymore because we will, what they point to, and what they have already inaugurated, we will be living in reality. And so that's the third time uh, at Christ's second coming, his uh, parousia, he will be manifest in such a way that there's no way you can't see him, right? And in some sense, we will contemplate God everywhere because God will be all in all. We'll, uh, everything will point to God in a direct way and not in a mediated way, okay? So, um, so these are the three times. They're mirrored in, the, in church construction in uh, traditional Western church style. You have the narthex or portico, 
outside the doors. That's the place of shadows. And uh, traditionally, catechumens and penitents were in that area. They weren't allowed into the church because they were not yet baptized. They were not yet inaugurated into the uh, time of the sign. When you step inside the doors and you sign yourself with holy water, you move into this place of signs. And everything in the church is a sign that points to Christ in some way. The church building itself is his body. The columns are the apostles. Uh, The windows point to Christ. The altar is Christ. Uh, The speaking of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel is Christ proclaiming. Uh, And finally, the Eucharist is Christ present. Baptism is Christ baptizing, etc., etc. So everything that goes on in the church is Christ acting in our lives through signs. Now, uh, in in some uh, mysterious way, once you cross into the sanctuary, uh, it's there's some sense in which the the priests who enter the sanctuary are entering into the reality in some in some way. And this is one of the reasons why, again, traditionally the sanctuary is barred from those who are not ordained uh, because these persons acting persona Christi. And so as Christ ascends to the Father, the priest ascends to the altar and sort of leaves this place of signs and enters into the reality. Um, that's the, but since we're, it's kind of a mixture because we're, since we're in that place of signs still, it's, it's a sign of him entering the reality and maybe on occasion there are some, some priests who actually experience ex- entering the reality. Mystics do this. Uh, they enter the reality in some way uh, in a more immediate sense than we do. Now, when that reality we're talking about, that's the second coming, as I said. The place of signs is that what we inhabit as baptized Christians. And so what we're looking to do is to... Uh, see Christ manifesting himself in as many things as possible, but especially in in the privileged places of the liturgy and in the scriptures and in the church. So that's what I'm going to talk about today is this intermediary coming. I did want to clarify some things that Bernard is saying here, though, just so you can can follow it a little better. I think the the first paragraph, the second paragraph are not too bad. Let's look at the third paragraph, though, just for a second. I want to explain what he's saying here. Because he's kind of backing up and getting a running start at at his explanation. Uh, What is this intermediary coming? And he says, don't think I made this up. And in fact, this idea of a third coming uh, goes back to the patristic era. St. Bernard is writing in the 11th century. Um, But uh, the the fathers of the church talked about this third coming. Uh, So he says, if a man loves me, he will keep my words. My father will love him and we will come to him. So that's... Um, right out of Revelation, and also it's kind of a a pastiche of Revelation and John. So that one's pretty clear. I read elsewhere, the man who fears the Lord will do good. But it is my opinion that more was said about the one who loves, namely that he will keep the words. Okay, so the one who loves uh, God will keep his words. That's what he's referring back to the previous quote now. Uh, So it's better to love the Lord than to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord is good. It's the beginning of wisdom, but to love the Lord is even better if we can make it to that stage. And why? Because we will keep God's words. And this is going beyond, I think, just kind of following the law. It's allowing the words of the law to change our hearts and to change our minds so that we 
uh, think with God's thoughts. But where do we keep the words? They, they're kept in the heart. So then he, he says, the prophet says, I've kept your words in my heart. So the one who loves the Lord will keep his words in his heart, lest he sin against God. Keep the word of God in that way, for blessed are they who keep it. Uh, and this is, again, uh, Christ's response to the woman who says, uh, uh, blessed is the womb that bore you and blessed the breasts that uh, gave you nurse. And uh, Jesus says, well, blessed is the one who hears the word of the Lord and keeps it, <laughs> right? So again, this is another quote. So let it pierce deep into your inmost soul and penetrate your feelings and actions. Uh, eat well and your soul will delight and grow. This is a favorite image of uh, Bernard that we, we take the word of God in Lexio Divina, and then we sort of chew it over. We repeat it to ourselves. Uh, we, we murmur it under our breath when we're waiting for the bus, uh, when we're, uh, we're taking a shower or whatever. You know, we, we recite the word of God in some way, and it eventually becomes a part of us. And if you're like St. Bernard, it becomes so much a part of you that you can't talk without actually quoting scripture. Um, but that can happen to each of us. So he says, don't forget to eat your bread because this is what feeds your heart. And if you keep the word of God, last paragraph, if you keep the word of God in this way, without doubt, you will be kept by it. So he's playing on some words in Latin here and actually in Hebrew as well, uh, that we, we, by observing the law, we keep it. Uh, but the word of the law, that's the same word for guarding, keeping guard over, and then God keeps guard over us, okay? And then the son with the father will come to you. So he's actually kind of expanded out this saying uh, that if a man loves me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come to him. And he's finally brought it back. He's been excavating this one line by bringing in all kinds of other scripture. Uh, the great prophet who will renew Jerusalem will come and he will make everything new. So this, uh, in the Advent liturgy, this quote about the great prophet, which is from, uh, I believe it's from Haggai, uh, this is applied to Christ. He's the great prophet. Jerusalem is, in Bernard's thinking, the soul of the believer. Okay, so uh, the soul of the believer, uh, Christ will come to your soul and make it new. Uh, I often think of, um, you know, sometimes the, the fathers will talk about the soul being the temple at Jerusalem. So the temple's at the center of Jerusalem, the city where Christ goes. And I often think when, when Christ goes to the temple and cleans it out and drives out all the money changers, this is why oftentimes when Christ comes to us, it actually causes a certain amount of tumult. Uh, we have to struggle a bit to acquiesce to whatever. Um, well, I should put it this way. We experience it as some kind of struggle against evil or feeling upset about something. And uh, it could be that Christ is actually entering our hearts and driving those demons out. <laughs> and they're, they're putting up a fight. They don't want to leave. Um, but in any case, uh, Christ coming to Jerusalem is Bernard's way of saying he will come to your soul, okay, and make it new. And the effect of this coming will be that no longer will you bear the image of Adam, but you will actually uh, be living the life of Christ. He will live in you, and uh, that's, then the kingdom of God will have arrived. You know, the second coming is there. We are walking images of Christ in that case. That's what we all want to be. Uh, and uh, we will give glory to God perfectly if we do that. So that's, uh, 
That's the goal of the monk, in fact. And so let's, um, let me turn to my notes now. Monks are oriented toward the end times, toward the end of time, to the second coming. <coughs> this is true of all Christians. And one of the things uh, I, I can't emphasize enough is that monks um, are simply Christians. Uh, we're, we don't have a special charism, actually. Uh, according to canon law, there, there, is, uh, um, there is a distinction between the religious state and the uh, lay state. And that's a, a good historical thing that's grown up. But in fact, uh, monks are simply lay persons who uh, have been called by God in some way to try to live the reality of the Christian life as, as intensely as possible. And, but it's, it's not something that separates us or that we're supposed to do this and you're not. Because all of us are supposed to live the Christian life as intensely as possible. Just some of us have to continue working in the world. Some of us have uh, families. Some of us um, have responsibilities of various kinds. Some of us are, don't have those things and are called by God to renounce those things so that we can sort of go ahead of you and try to point the direction that we're all trying to go. But we're all living the same spirituality. Monastic spirituality, in a sense, is not different than Christian spirituality. Um, we're not preparing ourselves for a, a, a certain kind of uh, service to the church as, say, active religious would. So, uh, say, the Dominicans have a certain type of formation because they're called upon to preach and to teach. Um, the Alexian brothers, when they were uh, involved in the burial of uh, Christians because of the plague, they had to learn, you know, uh, how to run hospitals. And so that's part of your formation if you're a religious order like that. But all of us, again, live this, this root spirituality which orients us toward the end times. This is one of the reasons why, in, in my opinion, the, the orientation of the church is really important, again, that we face East together because that's a sign that we are turned toward the end times. And so, yeah, I'm thinking about this this morning. Christ is coming from the East uh, uh, the, the rising sun is a type of Christ. He comes from the east. Um, there are several places in the scriptures where uh, it's talked about that, you know, the second coming will be like lightning from the east, crashing in from the east. So by turning to the east, we are using geographical space and our own bodies to remind ourselves that we're waiting for the second coming. That we turn and watch, Right? And just as we monks, we sit up uh, in the wee hours of the morning watching for the sun to rise, that's a sign of our sitting and waiting, watching for Christ's return. And we're training ourselves to recognize it. We're training ourselves to be patient. Um, we're training ourselves not to be distracted by other things. Uh, but again, all Christians are called to have this orientation. And uh, we sort of take the lead and, and uh, because we're all in communion with one another through the body of Christ, our watching can help all of you. But that's what we're doing. We're keeping vigil for Christ. Um, the, the office of vigils is the quintessential monastic office. You know, without, without vigils, it's not quite a monastic um, orarium. A, a monastic day is incomplete without keeping vigil in some way. Um, and this is one of the reasons why I would say for oblates, it's, you know, if, if you can do vigils, great, but laws and vespers are sort of more uh, 
typically uh, important for persons living in the world. Vigils is, is very particular to the monastic day. So if you can fit it in, all the better, especially if you can fit it in at the right time. You know, if you can keep it uh, at, at, in the evening. So it's been changed in the Roman breviary to the office of readings and can be said at any time of the day. In my opinion, again, it's, it's a little more beneficial if you can say it at night or early in the morning. But that's, you know, again, uh, whatever works in your schedule if you do vigils. But my main point is that we, we are all oriented toward the second coming. We're all awaiting that. The world uh, that's passing away really was broken and ended with the resurrection. I remember a, a very fine talk that was given by um, uh, Sister Diane. What was her last name? Bergant, yes. Uh, great scripture scholar, especially wisdom literature. Literature. She gave a talk to the community 20 years ago or so. And she said that she gets impatient when she hears people talking about new age stuff. So, the new age arrived 2,000 years ago. <laughs> there is no new age after that. Uh, that. That new age, that new dispensation was inaugurated with the resurrection. And uh, the resurrection, especially as understood as bound up with the ascension and with, the, with Pentecost. So with the Holy Spirit being poured out on creation, we now live in that time of signs because the Spirit teaches us how to interpret the signs. And uh, so we live this spiritual life in preparation for the full manifestation of Christ in the final coming. But, but the old world is, is passed away. Um, now when we say that monks seek God, this is a... Uh, St. Benedict says when someone comes to the monastery, the, the community should check and see if he's seeking God. And um, in our own uh, monastic ritual, when someone begins the novitiate, uh, we ask him, you know, what, what, do you, what are you here for? Why are you here? And he says, you know, I want to seek God and I want you to teach me how to do that. So uh, I want to show how this seeking God is part of this intermediary coming or this daily advent of Christ. Because what we're looking to do is again train ourselves to see Christ coming at, at, at any time and uh, to dispose ourselves to this daily advent and therefore to make real the kingdom of God now. So to seek the kingdom of God, that's another thing uh, John Cashin says of the monk that his goal is the kingdom of God. Well, what that means in part is that my mind, my soul, my heart are purified in such a way that I see Christ active in, in all things. And when Christ is active in all things and is working in, in me, then the kingdom of God has already arrived. Uh, my, I am a, a servant of God in a full way and he is reigning over me. Uh, there isn't anything in me that's rebelling against God anymore. Uh, this is the goal. So this is what monks are doing. We're trying to seek God. And again, in this, we are united to all of you. No one is any different. Uh, it's just we are given special tools to do this. And then this, again, helps us to be signs of that final coming. I just, I, I've been rereading uh, Brothers Karamazov. I, the scenes that have to do with uh, the, the elder Zosima, uh, I just find so, so moving. And uh, what's, what's fascinated, what fascinated me this time through 
was just how when people would uh, see him. So he's this elderly monk, uh, very, very, very humble, uh, and has become a spiritual teacher. And he, he says, again, very little that's, that's remarkable, but there's something about just his presence that everybody relaxes. Uh, everyone, the, the good news of the gospel seems real because he seems real. He seems, uh, he's been so um, purified and he's been so uh, consumed by the Holy Spirit that uh, the, God's love just shines out and it's as if the kingdom is there and everyone can see it and welcomes it. Uh, so he's a great, great sign. I, I don't know how many of you have read the book, but uh, his character uh, is very interesting in as much as uh, he, uh, he, he was kind of a late vocation. He was an army guy and uh, was challenged to a duel when he was, before he was a monk. And uh, when he sat up the night before the duel, uh, he realized in his heart that he was ready to, to murder somebody. You know, he was ready to kill somebody. And when he recognized how, how hateful a thing this was, um, he went to the duel, uh, but he refused to shoot at the guy. <laughs> and since he, he himself was not killed, uh, uh, the good thing about duels in the 19th century is that uh, the revolvers they used were not very accurate. <laughs> so you could, you could miss plausibly uh, just because the gun wasn't any good. Um, whereas today it would not be, uh, you, you wouldn't have a duel where both guys survived, but that was actually somewhat common. Anyway, having survived the duel, uh, as a penitent, he entered the monastery and uh, he felt for the rest of his life that he was, he was lesser than, than every man, as Father Timothy was talking about in his homily. And um, this sense of his own guilt before everyone, that he in his heart had, had consented to murder, allowed him to see everybody else in, in a kind of relaxed way because he didn't uh, feel the need to correct anybody else. He was working on his own correction. And then because of that humility, um, that seeking of reconciliation with God, the reconciliation that he needed after having consented to this terrible deed, um, he, he became this incredible conduit for God's grace. And in a sense, again, Christ returned in his person. We know that he's based on a historical character because uh, uh, Dostoevsky was a regular uh, retreatant at, um, I forget the name of the monastery, but uh, um, one of the, what's that? Optina. Optina, yeah. Um, one of his first books after he started going to this monastery was uh, Crime and Punishment. And uh, if you've ever read that, you know that it's interesting because almost everything takes place in the head of the main character, uh, who's another murderer. And uh, this is Dostoevsky learning from the monks to pay attention to what he's thinking. And then he realizes, wow, the, the mind is going a lot. And he thinks, what if I wrote a book in which I actually explored how people think and what happens when someone commits a crime, like how the person changes. And so that's what that book does. It's a, it's a well, this isn't a uh, talk about Dostoevsky, but uh, I, I really love his work. Um, so the monastic life is meant to consent to the coming of the kingdom of God mediated through these signs in such a way that Christ's spirit inhabits me and uh, 
we become the second coming in, in a certain sense. So let me talk about other ways in which Christ returns, though, in this intermediary return, because it's actually something that, we're, as I say, we're watching for hopefully everywhere. But we start with some clear places that Christ has marked out to us that are uh, symbolically more charged than others. And of course, the first and foremost of these are the sacraments themselves. And so, as I mentioned before, uh, just today, we, we experienced a miracle that Christ came back and fed us with his body and blood. Um, and at that moment, we were at the kingdom of God. So it's often you read that the, uh, the celebration of the Eucharist uh, is a foretaste of heaven and uh, that we are in some sense already at the heavenly banquet. We're at the kingdom of God, that, that celebration uh, at the end of time. So we are there, and the sense is that all of the saints and angels are with us celebrating. We just can't see them. We can only apprehend it through the signs that are given to us, and then by making an act of faith that those signs actually communicate the reality. Just we can't see the reality yet. Uh, but anytime we, we gather around the altar, anyone in history who has ever gathered around the altar of the Lord's uh, Supper is with us. Uh, because there is only one supper of the Lord. There is only one sacrifice of Christ. And so we sort of collapse time into this thing that takes place in eternity, which is Christ's redemption of us. And we're all there. So that's one place we can see Christ uh, present is in the sacraments. So obviously the Eucharist takes pride of place. But as I said before, uh, baptism and by extension, uh, confirmation also are Christ coming to inhabit the person who is being baptized to claim uh, her or him for his own. And so Christ is acting through the priest, through the church. He is there, he's present, he's returned. Uh, and he is conforming this person to his own incarnation, to his own uh, death and resurrection. And so when we see someone being baptized, uh, we should see Christ baptizing, not, not the priest. The priest is just a sign. Uh, it's, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not Father Peter who's, who's doing the baptism. Uh, I am simply consenting to Christ's decision to baptize this person, and he is the one who's doing it. But we can see this in, in all of the sacraments, and I won't go through all of them, but that, that's your homework, uh, to take the other four sacraments and see how Christ is present. The church... Christ is present in the church. In the monastery, this is a little easier for us in a way because we have a very structured system by which um, the, the offices of the monastery communicate Christ's action. So primarily this happens through the superior. St. Benedict says that he is believed to hold the place of Christ. And um, so when... Uh, the superior makes a decision about something and the monks can say, oh, this is what Christ wants. Christ has spoken through the superior. Um, now, that's a, that's a responsibility for me because uh, St. Benedict also says, I can't teach anything that Christ didn't teach. Uh, so, uh, but that's, there's also a certain confidence that comes with uh, being the superior because it's not about me. I just, I have to do my best to try to, to teach what Christ would teach, but he's the one who's actually active in the brother's life through the office that I hold. 
through a, a symbolically structured relationship. Uh, and so it's not about, it certainly makes it easier if the, the brothers and I can have a personal relationship, but it's not strictly necessary. Um, there are, uh, you know, there are all kinds of superiors. Some of them are good at personal relationships, some are not. But what's key is that the understanding is that the person acts in the place of Christ, in persona Christi. Maybe that's a little too strong, but maybe not. This, this is why I wear this, in fact. So it's a sign that Christ is present. It's not, it's not just me. It's not Father Peter. Um, but we have all kinds of things in the monastery where we do this. In the, the larger church, this is acted out through the church hierarchy. And this is an important point, and I think really needs stressing at, at a moment in our, our church's uh, situation where there's a, there's a certain distrust of the hierarchy. Um, the key thing here, again, is, is to try to negotiate the relationship we have with our pastors, with our bishops, with the Pope, in such a way that they see, are seen to hold the place of Christ, even if we don't agree with them, even if their decisions um, about church matters may turn out to be disastrous in some way or other, disastrous from our perspective. You know, it's, it's, the, it's always kind of a qualified disaster because um, the, the battle's already won. I mean, the resurrection's already taken place. Uh, I've said this to you before, but it bears repeating. Um, we human beings have already done the worst possible thing we could possibly ever, ever do. We killed God's son, okay? And that turned out for our salvation because God is greater than anything we can do. So no matter how bad things appear, uh, we can always be confident in faith that Christ is active, Christ is bringing about our regeneration, our salvation. Uh, so the first thing, the, you know, the first rule is to be calm. <laughs> first rule is not to be outraged by things. And, and this is why I had Father Timothy give that talk on consolations. To receive the light of Christ, the soul in consolation, S-O-L, is um, light, the sun. So consolations are, the, the, are those things where Christ gives us light in such a way that we are no longer anxious or angry or outraged or whatever. Now, if we have a position... Uh, that doesn't mean we become quietists, but it does mean that if someone in authority makes a decision and we just have no recourse to changing it, we make an act of faith that somehow God is going to make this work, you know, that, that he will bring about his purposes through this, and it'll be easier if I consent to it, however it is. Um, so, again, it, the, the trick is, not necessarily to like our pastors or have a personal relationship with the bishops or agree with everything they do or say, or even with the Pope, but to make an act of faith, uh, an act of submission, that Christ is in charge, he's, o he's over all these people, and he has given us these particular persons for his purposes at this per particular moment. And so first order of business is to try to be faithful, and try not to get too worried about stuff. Um, I, I, I emphasize this because uh, um, I don't know how much you know. All, all of you uh, read or, or what, you know what what stuff happening in the church you're paying attention to. What I hear from a lot of people who happen to be in contact with the monastery is a lot of anxiety, and um, uh, I, I understand that. I don't want to denigrate that or or, or, or shame anybody for for that 
initial response. That there are a lot, seems like a lot of things are going wrong. But then we want to get to a response of faith. We want to get to a response of, of confidence. You know, uh, feet, confidence is at root fides, faith. That, uh, you know, somehow or other, God has not stopped working or being present because that's one of the key things I said about consolations in that talk is that the, the effect of this, that initial response of anxiety is to imagine that God is far away and then I'm no longer disposing myself to seeing Christ's coming today. Christ is just far away. It's like, what are we going to do to get him here? Well, we can't do anything to get Christ to return. He's already doing it. It's, it's happening. It's happening in the sacraments. It's happening in the church. Um, it's happening in Lexio Divina. So let me go on to that. Bernard, I mentioned, was talking about this. Uh, the, Christ is the word of God. And uh, it's interesting the, um, when the deacon or priest uh, concludes pro- the proclamation of the gospel. In English, he says the gospel of the Lord. And then it says he is to kiss the text of the gospel. Uh, and traditionally, you kiss the top part of the text and if the book is really big and the top part of the text is really far away, you should pick the book up and then uh, kiss the top of the text. Uh, in the last 50 years, this has become something where people lift up the, the book and then hold it up and say, you know, this is the gospel of the Lord. It gives the impression that the gospel is the book or something. Um, and then you, you get the, the impression, too, when people say, you know, the word of the Lord they're talking about the, the words of the text or even the book itself. But when we talk about the, the word of the Lord, which in Latin is the same after the, the reading from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the gospel, verbum domini, what we're saying is Christ, the word, okay, verbum. Uh, he, he is present. He's the one who just spoke. He's communicating himself He's communicating God's will to us through the intermediary of the priest, of the lector, of the deacon. Uh, But it's not so much the priest, the lector, the deacon, or even the book itself, or even the words themselves. What's what's happening is Christ is inviting us to a relationship with him through speaking to us in these words. And what we're acclaiming is him. That's why we say praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We're, we're praising the word who communicates through the scriptures. Uh, so the scriptures have this remarkable uh, fecundity, spiritual uh, richness. Um, and so this is where Alexio Divina can be so helpful. And I know that uh, in, in lives, the lives you have in the world, it's not easy to find time for Alexia Divina every day. But if you, can, uh, if you can read one line of the Gospels or Paul's letters or the Psalms and carry that around with you for the whole day, you have the whole Christ with you. All of Christ is there um, in a mysterious way because Christ is, is one. He's not divided. He, he doesn't appear in... in um, he doesn't have different parts where he has to communicate this part and this part. We can analyze different aspects of, of Christ's presence because we live in 
this <coughs> intermediate time where we have we make distinctions and uh, we learn and we grow and so on. But Christ himself is always the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, when he communicates through the scriptures, it's him. It's, it's not just a part of him. He is with us. And so as, as we go through the day reciting the words of the scriptures, we're carrying Christ with us. And he's going with us. He is teaching us. He is informing our outlook on whatever we have to do today. Uh, so even if you can't do uh, 15 minutes of Lexio Divina every day, uh, just to open the, the scriptures and read something and then take that with you and try to uh, make it a part of your day, you will be uh, watching for Christ. He will be coming to you all, the, all throughout the day. Um, the divine office, of course, and that was sounding a lot like sort of what oblates are supposed to be doing, uh, you know, going to the sacraments, doing Lexio Divina, uh, praying the office. Uh, again, I'll, I'll point out that uh, the, the icon that we have, we pray the office in the church and the icon of Christ in glory is always presiding uh, because anytime we say, oh God, come to my assistance, oh Lord, make haste to help me. It's again, as if all the world passes away and we enter into heaven and there we are and there is Christ presiding and there are the uh, the saints and angels on the other icons in the, in the sanctuary. And uh, we are at the, that, that great chorus of saints and angels singing God's praises for all time. That's what we're doing at the divine office. Again, because we are still in this intermediate place, we, we get sort of a little bit here and there in our own understanding. But the reality through faith is that Christ is present. So when you pray the divine office, even if you just have the Roman breviary or whatever you've got, when you say, oh God, come to my assistance, oh Lord, make haste to help me. It's as if in spirit, you're transferred into our choir with us and you're praying with us. Uh, that's what's happened. You have entered into that place. Uh, so the more you can do when you pray the office to remind yourself of that, if you can pray with an icon or go to a church or have a a candle lit or something like that, that reminds you of this reality that you're entering into uh, the, the end times when you pray the office, that would be very helpful. Last of all, it's important uh, to remember uh, Matthew's chapter 26, uh, the Christ's second coming, he, he asks, uh, he judges the, and separates the sheep from the goats. And the, the test is, uh, whether we saw Christ. Yes, Mike. Chapter 25. 25, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I couldn't remember if there were two or three chapters about the, uh, the, the crucifixion and resurrection. Corporal works of mercy. Yes, yes, exactly. They're the corporal works of mercy. And it's not simply, you know, have we been nice people or something like that. It's that Christ is actually present in the poor, in the person in prison, in the sick. Uh, so when we see those persons... Christ is, is, has come. He's there. He has, he has made an intermediate advent, as we might say, to coin a phrase. Um, when guests come to the monastery and someone rings the doorbell, uh, it's Christ who's there. And this is why St. Benedict says several times we should greet all who come like Christ. Uh, we should receive them as Christ. We should treat them uh, in this way. He says, especially the poor, because the, the wealthy already get uh, a lot of attention, he says. Um, and and uh, 
I was when I was at St. John's uh, up in Collegeville, Minnesota, studying. Somebody told me that there's uh, there was one monk who uh, was the porter, and when the bell would ring, uh, he would say, "Oh Jesus, there you are again." <laughs> uh, a sort of amusing way to put it, but that's the that's the theology. And then um, it's in, this is a tricky thing because I, again, I'd say even in our own monastery, there's a tendency to feel like when the doorbell rings, it's an interruption. But I'll tell you this, whatever we've got going on at the second coming, it's not an interruption. <laughs> you know, whatever we're doing is of secondary importance. And so if there's some way, again, we can get to this, or just say like you're in a hurry and, um, um, you know, uh, there, there's an accident in front of you. And it seems like you might be able to help the person who's been hurt. But you got to get to work or whatever, Right. It seems like an inconvenience, an interruption. But perhaps it's Christ. You know, perhaps Christ has just come and presented himself to you and you can reach out to him and, and, and uh, receive him in the sick person and in the injured person. Um, I imagine most, most of us struggle. Uh, if you live in Chicago or nearby, uh, you, you can't go far without someone asking you for money. Uh, and, you know, without making any judgment about how we should respond in terms of whether we should give money or not, uh, we should respond as if it's Christ asking, or it's Christ at least present in the person. Uh, again, there, there are prudential reasons why we might decide uh, I, it would be better not to give this person money, uh, but it is still the case that it's Christ presenting himself in some symbolic way. And so this is a, obviously a big challenge for us. Um, we started something last year, uh, which I, I plan to do again this year. Uh, we spent a morning making sandwiches and then we drove around all the, the um, uh, colonies of the, the homeless who live. We have, we have a lot of homeless who live here uh, in Bridgeport and then nearby Chinatown. Um, normally on, we, we have lots of expressways that meet around here. And normally this is where they congregate and live. And so um, uh, we went in disguise. We didn't, we didn't want anyone to know we were the monks, but uh, uh, just my goal was to try to get the brothers who went to treat these, these men and women as Christ because that's what we're gonna be judged on. And not only that, that's a way to train ourselves again to receive Christ at every moment. Um, because in some ways it's harder to receive Christ in the persons who are most inconvenient for us, you know, who, who make the most demands on us, who are, are, who, you know, pose scandalous difficulties for us because uh, we just, we'd rather not have to deal with this situation for whatever reason. Um, so just that's another way in which, uh, because the, that world that's caused these problems of homelessness and poverty and illness and sickness, uh, that world of sin has been broken and is passing away. We can take the time to stop and point in our own behavior to Christ's kingdom. That the, this, all this suffering is passing away. And if we can somehow be with those persons, uh, we, we become a sign of Christ's presence to them as well. So... Um, I, another monk I know, he, uh, uh, 
he, he went through some, some grave personal difficulties some years ago. And after uh, about a year of, of working through all this stuff, um, he discerned a, a prison ministry. And so he's still at the monastery most of the week. But a few days a week, he goes in and just visits uh, people at the prison. And uh, it, it's really been a, a beautiful thing to see because uh, it, it's a ministry we don't talk about very much. Uh, but we have more people in prison in the United States than like any country in the history of the world. I mean, we, we have a huge prison system. And to the extent that we can be united to those persons and welcome Christ in the prisoner, uh, that is going to train us again to dispose, to be disposed to receive Christ elsewhere. Um, and again, that's not saying uh, that any of you are, are called to that ministry. It's just, it impressed me a lot because it, it wasn't something I expected from him. He's someone I know quite well. And um, uh, it, it clearly emerged out of his own humble acceptance of, of his life and what, you know, what, when had taken place in his own life. And then, you know, with his abbot, he discerned this ministry and he's been doing it now for about 15 years, which is really lovely. Um, so I believe that that's where my notes end. So what I'd like to do here is just uh, pause for a moment and see if anyone has any questions or, uh, or other uh, insights you'd like to share with us. I haven't confused you at all. <laughs> uh, Not this time. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. I, yes, Kevin. Yeah, I guess one question that I have is, um, so uh, certainly being able to help those in need is an area where Christians and non-Christians can find a lot of common ground. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, But I find that Sometimes my non-Christian friends are critical of um, the, the view that we're helping people because uh, we see Christ in them rather than just helping them <coughs> because they're a, a fellow human. Yeah, yeah. And, um, so there's also, there are, or should we also view helping others as just helping a human? Mm -hmm. Or should we always view it as um, helping a human uh, because Christ is in, is, is present? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm tempted to give an answer that'll sound like a cop-out, but it's really both and in the sense that, um, you know, in, in, in some, again, very mysterious sense, all, all human beings are destined for being part of the body of Christ. And so, um, and, and in some mysterious way, someone who's helping another human being because they're a human being is helping Christ. Um, and uh, so I, I see them as, as intimately connected and, and the mystery of the incarnation, which I'll deal with next month, is partly just that, that Christ shows the dignity of the human person by becoming one, you know, and that was the destination of our, that's been our destination from the creation of the world is that we human beings would be the vehicle through which Christ would make himself present in, and, and reign over creation. And so all human beings bearing the image of, of God, um, by responding to their humanness, you're responding to God in, in, some, in some way. Does that seem to uh, 
resolve that or yeah but it, it's uh it, I, I know what you're talking about um, and it's an interesting question in a way um, because in, in a lot of ways uh, just from just a human needs perspective it, it's frequently the case that say like professional social workers who aren't Christian can can offer more relief <laughs> than we can um, and, uh, you know, we'll even do that at the monastery. We'll sometimes tell people, uh, we, we'll try to set you up with a social worker because what, what we uh, can offer you is, is pretty limited in terms of your long-term needs. Um, but what we bring to it is some spiritual insight into what God is doing in the situation that's missing in just a transaction that's mostly focused on kind of temporal needs rather than those spiritual needs. Yes. Um, if because of time constraints, uh -huh. you are in a situation where it's uh, Samadhi, the divine office, or Lexio, yeah. where should the priority be? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, let me let me ask, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask some of the oblates if, if they've faced this, and if they've if they have any uh, if any of you have asked this question and answered it for yourselves. And then I'll, if, if um, after that, or if no one has a response, I'll offer my thoughts. So the question is, if, if because of time constraints, you can't do both Lexia Divina and the Divine Office, which do you choose? Is that pretty much? Yeah. Lexia Divina, just because it's easier, at least for myself, it's uh -huh. easier to do Lexia Divina. Uh-huh. Uh, I do the office because of the hours and the repetition uh -huh. of it. So, mm -hmm. and I can do Lexio at a different time, I feel. So. Uh-huh. Yeah. I do the office also over. Okay. Just because it's sort of similar to me. We're still reading a song. So, uh -huh. I feel like I need both. Mike, you were going to offer your... I, I try to focus on Lexio in the uh -huh. sense of the daily scripture. Yeah. I try to either attend mass or a Eucharistic service. And so, I use the scriptures of the day as... Mm -hmm. uh, reflection. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, yeah, Alex. I find the office um, puts a rhythm in my day mm -hmm. that I miss if it's not there if I'm mm -hmm. part of uh, Now, with that being said, I'm usually up very early in the morning and mm -hmm. I my Lexio then and the rest of the household is still asleep and all, so I'm mm -hmm. blessed to be retired and have that uh, luxury to be able to the So, so what I would summarize that I'm hearing is that the, the decision will be uh, dependent to a certain extent on, on your personal needs and situation, and that uh, e either one might be, prove to be the better solution depending on where you're at. Um, I think if, you know, if it helps to have a rhythm, then and you know that's that's really important. If time constraints and Lexio feeds you throughout the day in a certain way, uh, you know I think there's a certain amount of trial and error in that. Um, so yeah, I, I, w I would have a hard time again as a monk myself. I don't really have a choice, you know. I <laughs> I, um, I it would be easier to skimp on Lexio because it's not monitored um, in our community, but. Uh, um, it, uh, 
but I might just go to the office because if I don't, brothers will ask some serious questions. <laughs> <laughs> so my motives might not always be so good. So I think, um, you know, looking at your own situation and seeing what, what your needs are and what your capacity is would be the way to, to begin to answer that question. And in the meantime, you can, you know, you, the thing about being an oblate is you have a certain amount of freedom to uh, try out what seems to work. Um, I, I hope that's not avoiding your question too much. No. <laughs> <laughs> but these are, these are questions, you know, in, um, uh, you know, one of the things I hope to do before the end of the year, though Father Timothy's going to start taking this over, is um, working with um, the mentors again and assigning mentors to the novices. One of the reasons I want to do this is just my experience is um, these sorts of questions are really difficult for me to answer because I have it easy in a way. You know, I, I mean, my whole life is structured around six hours a day of Lexio in office. I just, that's what I do every day. And you guys can't do that for the most part, unless you're retired and, and uh, it fits your schedule. Even then, um, my experience with retirees is often they're just as busy as they were <laughs> while they were working. So, um, so these are questions I think would be great for you to be able to discuss with each other. And then I would certainly be happy to be a resource and offer some theological considerations and some distinctions and things like that. But ultimately, I'm reluctant to say to put burdens on you that would, that would cause you any anxiety. Um, our, our goal is to be at the service of your, your growth in the spirit. So, yes? Yes, why, why does it say that the Ascension instituted the time of the sign? I'm very curious about that. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Um, I'll be honest, when I wrote that down, and this, some of you have my notes on the back. I accidentally printed my notes for some of you and some of you don't. So this is, these are, some of you might not have this. Um, I'm repeating something that I read in uh, spiritual theology, or um, what is um, the Spirit of the Liturgy uh, by Pope Benedict XVI. Um, it, so I, I don't remember exactly where he brought that in from, but it is a kind of truism in the sense, I, oh, I, I, can, I can tell you. So while Christ was present on earth, again, the, the apostles could see him, touch him, speak to him directly. When he ascends, they no longer can see him directly. And they're looking up in the sky and the angels say, hey, don't look up in the sky. Because now with the, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, they begin to interpret the scriptures. They can see what the scriptures point to, what the prophecies point to, what the liturgy points to. So it's the combination of, of understanding Christ's withdrawal from being able to be seen in, in, with our uh, fleshly eyes and then the gift of the Holy Spirit, so we see with the spiritual senses what the reality is. So that's how the ascension, and uh, that's also, traditionally it's understood that this inaugurates the liturgy, because it's after the ascension then that the, the church becomes the church with Pentecost, and the first thing the church is about is celebrating the mysteries of Christ in the liturgy. And the liturgy is all about sacramental signs pointing to reality. So that's, that's basically the answer. Father Timothy, Father Ever, am I missing anything? We've all read the spirit of the liturgy. But that's, yeah. And then, and then how does um, the institution of the Eucharist figure in there? Because that's, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's 
It is, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. That, uh, undoubtedly, there were fathers who would have speculated on, um, you know, what, what the, the apostles were doing between the resurrection and the ascension. But I think, again, as long as Christ is present in the flesh, the Eucharist is not strictly necessary. When he withdraws uh, his, his fleshly presence, he's now present in the flesh in the church, and especially in the Eucharist, which, uh, which what, what is Delubach's thing? The, the Eucharist founds the church. Um, he says something stronger than that. Uh, the Eucharist is, is at the heart of the church. Without the Eucharist, there's no church. Um, but those are, those are how Christ presents himself. So before the ascension, again, my, my provisional judgment is that the Eucharist would not have been necessary because Christ was present in the flesh. Oh, this is recorded, so if, I, if somebody hears that I said something heretical, they'll, they'll hopefully contact the monastery and I'll email you, but that, that would be my, my understanding of it. Um, it, it does in the sense that, again, when he ascends into heaven, he, 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 the right hand of the Father means the throne. So um, he is the, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It's real now. Uh, Christ is enthroned. And uh, one of the things kings do when they take the throne is give gifts out to all of their subjects. So he gives us the Holy Spirit as his gifts. And the gifts of the spirit, uh, uh, this spiritual kingdom is, is now. Uh, and at the same time, uh, even though it's now, and, and for some mysterious reason, it's not yet. Right? So eschatology always has these two uh, poles of tension. The kingdom of God is now because Christ is seated at God's right hand. But it's also in the future in the sense that we're seeing things through symbols and not in reality yet. So, yeah, it's both and. Good. Well, speaking of the liturgy, that's my first responsibility. So we will, we will conclude here. Let's pray together, though, before we depart. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Our Holy Father, St. Benedict, Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.